Welcome to the Content Queens podcast, a weekly conversation about the complexities and nuances of the creator-driven social media economy. We are your hosts. I'm Kia Marie, but these social media streets know me as the Notorious KIA. Put some respect on it. And I am the Vic Styles, your internet best friend. Between the two of us, we have over 10 years of social media experience and hundreds upon hundreds upon thousands of likes, views, and followers. Shit, Kia is even verified. And that's not a brag. It's simply just the fucking truth. Period. Our platform exists to inform creators, new and old, about the bounty of wealth and growth opportunities in the content creator industry and simultaneously share the best practices for your careers to have longevity just like ours have. Content Queens is an amalgamation of your favorite talk show segments featuring high-profile guest interviews and discussions on current events, all while exploring the most pertinent issues in today's social media climate. And the forecast, the word of social media is scorching hot and isn't letting up anytime soon. As new classes of creators continue to ascend into the ranks of the creator economy, there still maintains a lack of decorum and transparency on both the brand, agency, and even the influencer side. But we're here to fix that. We believe as an industry, it's not enough to teach virality if you aren't also teaching scalability and sustainability too. Insert your content queens. But it's not just our wisdom that we're sharing. This season, we're inviting a handful of seasoned guests and some of your favorite creators to share their experiences and best practices on how to thrive as an online creator. Here are watches anywhere and everywhere you get your podcasts, but hold up, sit back down. We're not done with you. Hit that subscribe button now so you won't miss a minute or even a second of what we have in store for you. For now, this is Content Queens. Where content is queen. Welcome back, Kingdom, to episode number seven. Yo, seven's my favorite number. Really? I think mine is three. Why three? Because my name is three letters. Okay. And my basketball number was 21. So two plus one is three. And it's just like the holy trinity, you know. It makes sense. (laughs) I love that it's deeper than like, I just love this number. No, but my life path number is four. Do you know your life path number? I feel like we did I, we did this question before. I asked you. I think I'm a one. Okay. I need to go back and see what that means, though. But seven is definitely my favorite number. It's the number of completion. Even though the season is not complete, seven So what is do you equate like it to, though? Like, seven. What do you mean? Like, it's... Why, why? Yeah, like, do you see sevens a lot? Like, why do you want to be completed? Why I do you want to finish? Oh, shit. We on a journey. Now I need to think about this because I don't know why that's my favorite. It just has always been my favorite number. Now I need to do some soul searching and understand why. Yeah, we'll wait for that. (laughs) Shanae's episode was all about management last episode. And I feel like we are, we're already in unprecedented times. But I feel like there's going to get to a point where there's going to be not enough. There's going to be so many influencers, not enough managers. I agree. But does that happen with modeling? Do you feel like there's a ton of models and not enough agencies? Not good ones, no. Because you remember yeah. there is a prototype to a model, right? Yeah. Then and the same mostly, is true for an influencer. Now it's, I feel like there's okay. no beauty standard with influencers. There's like, you could be any shape, size, ethnicity, gender, like. But to be managed though, but to be managed by a reputable agency, there are metrics that you have to fall within. Okay. I can so see I that. So I think that everybody that's going, like, there are people that are going to go viral on the internet and still not be manageable material based on what the agencies are looking for. 
I feel that, but I still feel like it's going to get to the point to where it's going to be like one manager managing 80 influencers, like what we already see, because there's not a lot of management agencies. Or I can just see individuals getting to the point where they're managing people like their friends or having their husbands or family members manage them. Yeah. Um, Or even like we spoke about last episode about having your lawyer versus having a manager. And I think for this episode, it's really important because we actually asked our guests about the difference between a manager and agent and having a lawyer. And if we can just X out the middleman and just get a lawyer. So y'all definitely want to stay tuned for that because this was like a whole consultation with a lawyer. Like we did it. So y'all don't have to. Since I learned so much and I kind of left scared. And I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes legalese can be a little bit frightening because it seems like it is another language. It's a whole different culture that a lot of creatives, we just aren't really apt at. Like, I don't really want to read six page contracts. And I know that it's necessary. But after listening to her, it's like, oh, no, you need to comb through every single word. And it's like they purposely use this language to trip you up. It's like, why you just can't say what you want us to say in just regular English language, like regular terms so I can understand. Like, why you have to add all of this, like, and right. whatnot? We want to and... use this photo forever. <laughs> right, just, just say, say we want to use this forever. Period. In any circumstance. <laughs> I get that. But all of the other Latin-based words, I don't, I don't know what that means. And Marissa, our guest, she really breaks down, like, all, like, those hot keywords that we normally and typically see in contracts. So that was really helpful. And she did a really good job of also what you just said, explaining how you can utilize a lawyer instead of maybe an agent or a manager to get the same result and to protect yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Because like not everybody, one, can afford a manager, right? But what she mentioned in this interview about having a lawyer, like that you need to get a lawyer in the beginning. Like, so before yeah. even a manager, an agent, and all those things, like, a lawyer is something that you need. I was just like, whoa, I didn't even think about that. But it makes sense because when you're, you're dealing with contracts, you know, and who better to help you navigate that than a lawyer? Yo, first things first, before we even get back into this conversation, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are on the road to 1,000 subscribers and more, but definitely give us a follow because we're like we said we bring in the production all the way up this season so show us some love the world of content creation is filled with legalese from contracts to trademarks to copyrights and everything in between and if you're trying to make money in this business you need to speak the language or you need to know someone who does in this week's episode we speak with entertainment and intellectual property business attorney marissa crespo In the entertainment industry, Marissa has been involved in deals for TV shows on major networks such as NBC, VH1, Bravo, and WeTV, and she's worked on shows like Love & Hip Hop and some of the Real Housewives franchises. As the principal of Crespo Law Office, PC, Marissa represents entertainment content creators in complex commercial deals and entertainment transactions. Content Kingdom, please give it up for Marissa. Y'all, I have a question, Vic. Yeah? Have you ever signed a bad deal? In your in the past, yeah, you know I definitely yeah. have, and you know Hove did that, so hopefully you won't have to go through that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so this episode is super, super, super important. We're going to be giving you guys the tools to be better 
advocates for yourself when it comes to this legalese? Because I know it can be a bit intimidating, all the jargon and stuff like that. Um, but I think it's super, super important for us to have this conversation. And we're going to be breaking everything down from contracts to LLCs. So hopefully you'll be more empowered to never sign anything that's not in your best interest. So thank you, Marissa, for stopping by the kingdom, lending us your knowledge and your expertise and, of course, your time. Oh, absolutely. Glad to be here. Thank you. So let's kick it off with starting with the type of law that you do. So my uh, the bulk of my practice is basically doing entertainment. So what that breaks down into specifically is in regards to film, TV, podcasting, uh, trademarks and, and copyrights and all the, the transactions and, and contracts around those types of deals. What inspired you to get into entertainment law? So I actually started off as a creative writer. Um, that's how I began. And I used to take dance classes at Alvin Ailey and uh, Philodenko when I used to be at Villanova. Um, so I always kind of had this creative background that I really wanted to transition into the business side um, and decided on law school as kind of the route to, to help protect content creators. That's so dope because I do have a background in legal. Like most of my work experience up until this part has been in legal from working in entertainment firms, to law firms, to even recruiting firms. And so being a creator now, like during it, I was just like, you know, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, studied uh, for the LSAT, all that kind of stuff. And then I was just like, ah, God has other plans for me, maybe in another life. But now as a creator, it's come full circle because I'm dealing with contracts that I used to deal with when I was at the entertainment law firm. You know, I'm dealing with, you know, intellectual property and getting trademarks, you know, from when I worked at the law firm in intellectual property. And so it's like all this experience that I've gathered over the years that I thought I would never use has come in so handy to me as a creator. And I was so excited to have this conversation because it's so important um, because one of the first things that we do as a creator, you know, we're signing contracts and stuff like that. And I think if if we were more empowered when we're signing these contracts, we would not make some mistakes and then we can just better advocate for ourselves, for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that a lot of creators don't even really pay attention to the contracts. We just like, oh, sign it. Give me the job. Give me the money. That's it. So I agree. This conversation is extremely important. Um, especially for creators of color. You yeah. know what I mean? Like a lot of us don't have someone that we can go to that even understands this language. Um, and so I think it's important for us to learn it on our own. So question, Marissa, what kind of clients do you work with? So the bulk of my clients, I would say, I had to put in a pie chart, um, 90% of my clientele base are people of color okay. and specifically women of color, uh, a huge predominant portion and I think what it has to allow with it is, um, to be honest, I felt like it, it took me several years to really figure out after having my practice, what kind of attorney I wanted to be. And after, you know, having worked for large firms, working in-house, you know, just kind of seeing how others have done it, the, the best way to do it, the wrong way to do it. I kind of came up with my own of being able to kind of fuse together what my interests were and why I got into the legal space in the first place besides the creative aspect but also the advocacy portion and being able to represent the underrepresented. And so for me, I think it makes sense now. <laughs> and that's why I have as a tagline of the firm where law, culture, and identity collide. Not for it to sound cheesy, but it truly is an arena where I'm kind of able to do this advocacy work within the entertainment space to really help push certain voices in Hollywood that have really been undermined and underrepresented. Now, is your practice nationwide or is it specific to a certain region? 
So I am licensed in several states, um, licensed in New York, New Jersey, uh, Georgia, and working on Cali. Um, however, my, my clients come from all over, including the, the major entertainment epicenters um, by way of the transactional work and then also the fact that the trademark practice is a federal practice. Why is it important for you to know where an attorney is based? Like, does it really matter? Because I know I hear some things about, oh, I'm not licensed in this state and I'm licensed in this, this state, so I'm not able to work. Like, how does that work? Yeah, it really depends on like the scope of the services that the attorney is going to be providing. So for instance, um, you know, entertainment is one of those pretty, pretty national, you know, you tend to find most of the attorneys are out in California, New York. Um, you have folks here in, in Georgia as well. Um, so as long as it is transactional in nature, you can kind of set the governing law um, where you where you need to. And like generally speaking, in New York or California is usually the, the more popular uh, states. But as far as something specific like real estate, I would say. So if you're setting up your business and you're actually a physical location that's going to be in you know the state of Georgia, you do want to have a Georgia real estate attorney, someone that is experienced and licensed in that respective state, to take a look at your contract because it could vary very differently from the New York market versus the California market. All right. So working with a lawyer is a little bit intimidating. It was for me at first, right? Like, it just seems like such a big girl thing to do. Why do you feel like it's important for creatives, content creators specifically, or influencers to work with a lawyer or at least have a lawyer that they can call if necessary? Well, as you said, it's, it's kind of like the, the big world thing to do, right? So as you're thinking about starting your business, I think anybody can start their business by filing something at the Secretary of State and then calling whatever it is they're doing a business. But how do you bring in that business? How do you protect it? How do you expand and grow it so that way it's truly a legitimate you know, company that becomes established over time. Um, so I think having, you know, having an attorney who's got your back, one that you can actually talk to and feel like you're not getting charged every single minute uh, that you're on the phone with them, but one who truly values what it is that you're doing from the creative side and business end um, and being there as kind of like a team player in helping your business grow, I think is, is really important. It also is a great way for you to kind of bounce ideas depending on the type of attorney you select being able to kind of get their perspective and, and counsel, not just on the legal side, but if they have that business experience and they're business savvy, they can really give you that, that level-headed counsel that you may need as you're starting up. Are there other benefits to working with an attorney? Absolutely. I think I think what it really comes down to, I'm, I'm a people person. Um, so each attorney is going to tell you something different, but here I am today and I'll tell you where I come from. So as far as the type of attorney, I think they, you know, any business owners should consider is what kind of what kind of attorney do you want? Do you want someone who is extremely aggressive, always always wants to come from like a zero sum mentality and fight zealously on your behalf? Or do you want someone who does all of those things, but in a way that's much more um, how do I put it? One that that's really easygoing in style, one that thinks about the overall deal and business goal to and try to get there knowing that there might be different avenues in the zero-sum mentality that could be a little bit more aggressive and litigious. Um, I also think, you know, taking a look and seeing their background. Did they have businesses of their own? Uh, are they business savvy? There are some lawyers that unfortunately are just really all about the legal and they don't actually want any input to give any input or to be asked any questions on the business side because they believe that's truly all in your realm. And there are some attorneys like myself who like to explore the business ideas and, and to help counsel in that aspect just as much as the legal affairs side. 
Um, so I think being able to find an attorney that kind of fits your needs and your needs can change, uh, I think is really the, the best route. And sometimes that may mean having more than one for given circumstances. No facts. It's something you said that was really funny to me about um, certain lawyers can be very aggressive and you have to know if that's what you want. I had a call with my lawyer and the other lawyer was very aggressive, but this was the first time I'd ever had a call with my lawyer and another lawyer. Yo, I got off the call kind of shook, like, oh my God, is this how? And I just assumed that's how lawyers spoke to each other. And my lawyer called and she was like, no, that's not how we all speak to each other. That particular person was just extremely aggressive, but I had no idea that it could get like that. And sometimes they can, yes. And sometimes some attorneys can get real anti up when (laughs) they know that they're like, that other side's uh, client is on the phone. Uh, So sometimes, you, you know, I've had this come up a few times when I'm in, you know, negotiations where my client may say, can I be on the call? And I say, with all due respect, I'd rather it be attorney to attorney unless we're all kind of getting on the call. And and usually I don't like for all parties to be on the call off the strength that sometimes that flexing occurs. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm a big fan of, you know, in counseling my clients, I'll say, look, how have you been speaking with them up to this point? And if it's been business to business, let's keep it there. I could be your coach slash cheerleader in the background. And if I have to come to the forefront and speak with that attorney, then we'll get to that point. But if you guys have been able to negotiate some of the material terms, business to business, keep it there because I guarantee you, once us attorneys get on the phone, there's going to be a lot of dickering back and forth (laughs) regarding those terms. And I never want to be one to hold up the deal. Like, let's get this done. Now, our listeners, the kingdom, they come from various levels within their career. So at what point would you say is a good idea to start, you know, maybe hiring an attorney? Um, You know, in the beginning. So when you're in the beginning of your career, um, I think it's important because you you don't know what you don't know until you don't know or until you know it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's one of those things where having someone who has been in the business experience understands how the nature of things can go can sometimes help like calm your concerns and and your fears uh, that sometimes builds that anxiety of how people tend to negotiate or not negotiate (laughs) certain situations. So I think it's good to start from the very beginning if if you can afford it. Um, And attorneys are different in terms of pricing structures, which I'm sure we'll probably get into. Um, But again, that goes back to that key thing of like finding the right attorney because it's truly a relationship. Just as much as if you're an actor a writer, director looking for an agent or looking for a manager, finding that attorney is like finding those parties too and being able to help counsel and coach you through each stage of your career, whether you're in the beginning phase or if you're in that pivot, moving into more complex realms and you haven't dealt with before as far as uncharted territory, having someone kind of, you know, hold your hand and help guide you to that next level, I think is important. So Marissa, you mentioned this perfect or this ideal client-attorney relationship. Um, As a client shopping for an attorney or looking for one, what are some key points that we should have on our checklist to make sure that we are aligned? Definitely, you know, checking out their profile and asking around, looking at, you know, what is it they specialize in? So I always give the example, you know, yes, there are a certain number of entertainment attorneys out there, but there are some that specialize more so in music. Like I myself, I've, I've done music in the past, um, not my passion. So for me, it's film and TV all the way. Like I'm your film and TV lawyer, 100% podcast uh, attorney, uh, trademarks attorney. Now, there's some that focus more so on representing production companies versus uh, the actual you know, startup content creator or those that 
kind of do both. Um, and that kind of runs the gambit with, with any specialty area, whether it's entertainment, if you're looking for a litigator, you want to know that the litigator has had experience with the entertainment matter or real estate matter, whatever the specific specialized area of the issue is that you need assistance with. And then go beyond their profile, you know, ask around, see if anybody, you know, within your social organizational groups that you may be a part of has dealt with this particular attorney or a number of attorneys and get recommendations there. I think it's great to kind of get that cross check. Um, and there's no, you know, no better than a referral straight from a friend of yours that you trust as well. Um, so I think on the attorney side, it's one of the biggest compliments when you have clients who are referring their friends and their colleagues off the strength that they had a great experience with you. So I think those are some of the, the initial checks. And then obviously, once you get on the phone with them, if it's hard to get a hold of them, if you're only getting their assistant, they never want to speak with you. They only want, want to deal with you via email. I mean, those should be kind of kind of red flags with a caveat that if you haven't paid a consultation or whatever their process is, respect the process. When you get on the phone with them, if it just doesn't feel like it clicks, then maybe, you know, that's a red flag in the beginning to kind of like be keen on and, and honing on. So let's get into the coins. All right. So how mm -hmm. much does this cost? Like how much is it to have a lawyer? Like, should we, is it a project by project thing? Is it a retainer thing? It's a mixed thing. So I think it really depends on the, the scope of work. I can't speak for, for all attorneys, but uh, there are several different types of models. There's kind of like the flat feet model. The, the flat feet model is great um, because now a client knows how much they would have to, to pay for said contract or handling, you know, the negotiation of a particular matter. Uh, there might be a hybrid model where it's kind of a initial retainer up front and then a charge of an hourly rate. Or there might be something that's a percentage of whatever it is that you're making. Um, what I will say is, is this, you know, when it comes to certain percentages, that might be based off of, you know, in settlement negotiations, that's something that's typical. When you're dealing with the entertainment realm, it gets pretty interesting because the, the percentage really might be tied to an actual budget, like a real budget, <laughs> not a budget in the future um, type of thing, or, or depending on the caliber of the talent you know, attorneys might decide to do like a gross percentage fee off of all deals that they negotiate on such talent's behalf. But those are usually reserved for the type of talent that um, has a lot of like great projects that are coming in that automatically have budgets associated with them. Now, I know some people advocate for having a lawyer versus having a management company. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I guess I would ask in which areas exactly, because that could vary. Just like for negotiating deals. So a manager can help. So it's actually, I'm glad he asked the question. It kind of splits up like the roles among a, an agent, a manager, and an attorney. So your manager is actually not supposed to be negotiating uh, deals, procurement of it, because it's kind of like tapping a little bit into the agency side and legal side of things. So a manager is really supposed to help guide you in your career. So let's say that you are a writer. Um, and you have a management firm that does not have agents that are involved um, and, and part of the firm, basically they're supposed to help guide you in your writing career. They help to review drafts. They help line you up maybe with a script consultant who can help, you know, doctor your scripts and whatnot. And then the agent is actually someone who helps to book gigs for you. They deal with more of the 
negotiations back and forth, you know, via email and by calls of like, here's what my client would actually want, you know, in being attached to this project. We need to think about an upfront fee, think about the split of back end, et cetera, to kind of get the material terms together. But the actual drafting and memorialization of that in writing is going to come from the attorney. And so that's kind of how there's a split among the roles with each of them and how they should each play their part. Yeah, I feel like with content creation and social media it has made everything like a one-stop shop. Yeah. Like your management company and does all agent. those things. Yeah. 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 And that's why, I mean, that's why there was such a huge ordeal with the WGA um, recently within the last few years, you know, in regards to agencies um, taking not only their commission as far as representing the talent, but these packaging deals that started happening where you had your CAAs and WMEs of the world financing projects. So they're getting their 10% prod code fee. Then they're also getting their 10% from the talent and putting them in the projects. And then on top of that, they're getting their backend splits, you know, with whatever deal that they've shaken out with Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max. So because of all this double and triple quadruple dipping, it became problematic. And with the WGA strike as a result, what started happening was a lot of management firms sprung up that were a combo of attorneys and managers. So that way the managers weren't doing the agency part negotiating, but bouncing it to the attorneys who were licensed to be able to take care of it. And they kind of did their respective splits. So yeah, everything is about a one-stop shop. We're in a, a popcorn, you know, environment of getting things done. Everyone wants things right now. So, you know, sometimes you have to make sense and understand the zeitgeist of how things are moving and shaking and the industry's really peep like really what's going on and how to negotiate for yourself. So where's the where do you start? Like do I just Google entertainment, content creator, lawyer? Do I ask <laughs> friends? Like where do I actually start the process for looking for a lawyer? I would say both. Um, if you're looking, you can look in your respective, you know, locale. There are also with each state bar association, there is entertainment, arts and sports law division typically. And that's where you can kind of hone in on who are the entertainment attorneys that are licensed in this state and then look at their profiles and see if you can find your respective lawyer for whatever it is you need, whether it's podcast lawyer, TV lawyer, film lawyer, et cetera. And then also ask around. Are there like resources like LinkedIn or are there like Facebook groups where you can go and like find the lawyer? Yeah, I mean, I'm a part of um, HUE, you know, that's H-U-E, you know, um, Black Women in Media. I'm part wow. of those groups. So I sometimes see when people post and are looking for entertainment attorneys. Um, and I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's like part of that group that's an attorney. So sometimes I'll spring up, which I always hate those moments because I'm like... Shout me out. Okay, hey, shout me, shout to me. But, you know, at the same time, I'm like, shameless plug. Yeah, <laughs> Here I am. Um, so, I mean, yeah, just asking the, the groups that you're probably associated with, thinking about it from a creative side, um, the, the organizations you're part of, because there's probably attorneys that are also smart enough to actually be in those groups, too, to see if they can get the clientele base. Wait, what is Hugh You Know? Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. What oh, is that? Yeah, no. It's a it's a dope organization. So it's an organization that's catered toward um, creatives of color in all media. So whether that's film, television, podcasting, um, you've got your screenwriters, your directors, your indie filmmakers, those that are established. It run, kind of runs the whole gambit. Um, and they're a Facebook group. So you have to be invited in so you can fill out the application form. They've got, the, you know, their rules, their community rules. And once they let you in, it's a great resource just to kind of 
see who else is on there. I see a lot of people collaborating together a lot. Um, they're going to that platform and they also provide services for the independent filmmaking market. All right. So let's move on to contracts. I feel like this is it. Like <laughs> most creators, most of their business, before they begin any campaign, before they any services are rendered, there's a contract that is signed that is not even, even before it's signed, it is sent to you for review. So can we talk about what are the basic things that a contract should contain? Yes. Um, so if it's a contract for services, the material terms that you need to have in there are the things that, you know, most <laughs> most people care about. Uh, how much are you getting paid? It's also important to find out timing of payment in connection with that provision too, right? Because uh, it doesn't mean anything if they don't put a time aspect to it. Is that within 30 days on execution of the agreement? Um, three years out? No. <laughs> Let's see. Um, so you've got your timing of payment. You also have the, how long is the term? Is this a contract that's set for services that are supposed to take place right now upon execution? Or six months down the road, how long are you tied to such thing is always a, a key point you want to take a look at. And what are your termination rights? Do you have the right to terminate? And if so, how does that breaking apart of the, the parties really fold out? And what happens after that? Um, if you're a content creator, you always want to think about your IP. So are they hiring you to contribute to a project that you're not going to have ownership of? And I will say it's very typical in, you know, I am catering to like the film, TV space and podcasting spaces. But, you know, so please let me know if there's other areas, too, that you want me to address. I certainly will. Um, but in those agreements, you know, thinking about your IP, is there something that you want to retain ownership of that they might be making a derivative of? Um, you still hold on to the rights of the underlying work or share even in that derivative. Those things kind of get spelled out or should get spelled out inside contract. You also want to think about um, in regards to what types of representations and warranties are they making to you and that you're making to them as well. The reps and warranties and identification clauses, some of those things a lot of people tend to gloss over, sometimes admittedly even attorneys. <laughs> but I think it's very important to take a look at because they're called boilerplate provisions for a reason. At some point in time, they blew up and became very important clauses that actually got litigated. And so you always want to do a cross check and just make sure it has what it needs to in there um, to suffice for whatever the circumstances are between the parties. An example I can give, for instance, is a clause called force majeure. Um, it's a fancy little term, <laughs> meaning that if there's something that's beyond control of the parties, you can kind of cast the level of circumstances that may occur, then services can either be suspended or terminated if either without pay or postponement of payment. And that became something of a term and provision that was really important during the pandemic. A lot of festivals, for instance, like South by Southwest, uh, once the pandemic occurred and, and South by Southwest was happened like what, like a month or two after the national shutdown, they were trying to utilize force majeure to say, hey, we have to cancel this event beyond our control. Also, by the way, we're not refunding tickets. We're not doing this. We're not doing that, right? <laughs> Nobody was getting their money back. Um, so. That became a, a big area of negotiation and, you know, also litigation in certain aspects. And it's happened in commercial leases. It's happened uh, businesses, you know, as far as productions that were supposed to occur. Actors who were guaranteed payment called pay or play. Companies had to pay out because they actually 
withdrew themselves from other opportunities to take this opportunity that now hasn't actually come to fruition just yet. And so even though you're leaning on force majeure, does it fully excuse you or not? And so those types of questions kind of come up in boilerplate provisions that you still want to make sure do a cross-check on. Now, for content creators specifically, I do run across, we run across force majeure all the time. Mm-hmm. So what particular language are we looking for in there to make sure? Because, you know, COVID happened yeah. and there were a few things that I signed that didn't end up moving forward. So in that instance, was there was the company still liable to pay me? Depending on the wording. So now you will see in a lot of contracts that were not present before, force majeure, you would see crazy terms like acts of God. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> no one is in this. <laughs> so you saw acts of God, war, riots, strikes. Um, now you will see pandemics, epidemics. I wasn't there before. And even language like any governmental shutdown orders. So maybe it hasn't risen to the level of a pandemic or an epidemic, but there is a local county governmental shutdown order because they're taking conservative precautions to make sure that a bunch of people can congregate together for uh, a festival or for a production. And so that can kind of stall, you know, the actual project from moving forward that parties now want to lean on to go ahead and, and get out of their contracts. Those are the types of things that were in there. But I've also seen some other crazy stuff. I've seen you know, supply shortages, which is actually not that crazy in, in this pandemic world these days, depending on, you know, the services or what types of materials need to be provided as far as goods. But I, I've seen uh, issues that were not force majeure. The whole point of that is supposed to be beyond a party's control. But I've seen things that I'm like, no, that's within your control. You just don't mm. know how to order <laughs> you know, yep. get your lead time together, get your people together. We're striking that part out. So that's why it's good to like really read those clauses because sometimes they'll just throw in the whole kitchen sink. And um, you want to make sure that it actually makes sense of like how that provision was originally supposed to be crafted. I think the biggest thing we're learning is like, read your contracts, read. okay? And like the last yes. couple, like last month or so for me, I've really had to do like deep, deep dives into my contracts. And I actually had to step away from a few things last minute because like the contract just was not together. And I was just like, yeah, there's no way I can sign this. Absolutely not. So yes, read your contracts. So don't sign anything that you don't agree with. Like, like with, a, with a fine tooth comb yes. also, and like go questions. through it. Ask questions. Yeah, for ask, sure. you know, ask questions. I think, you know, I think that's the thing that um, that kind of gets me sometimes and like grinds my gears that I hear about. Like, as I mentioned before, we're kind of in this popcorn culture where everyone thinks that success just happens overnight. Talk to people who actually have some success, right? They'll actually tell you, no, there have been many a nights that I was like, I'm broke, y'all. I have to figure this out. You know, I need to do something. I was going to work at Foot Locker, you know, whatever the case may be. We all see the the red carpet events. We see people posting up for the gram and it looks great and looks successful. But let me tell you that grind time is real behind the scenes and those late night hours and the burning of the midnight oil. Um, so with that said, when looking at a contract, you have a deal in front of you. It's always exciting. I know I, you know, I'm working on a project of my own that I'm trying to flip into the creative again and be an executive producer and producing my own docuseries. And it's, it's nerve wracking, you know, even as much as, I counsel people in this now flipping and putting the creative hat on. I see the anxieties. I understand it. And I always have understood it. And so I feel like I spend a lot of time, you know, with clients and just kind of telling them to just take a deep breath, take a beat. You know, you got a deal that's in front of you. This is great. 
it may be your only one that you have at the moment, but it doesn't mean it needs to be the one. Let's actually review this and let's figure this part out. And sometimes in having to, you know, whittle it down, dissect it, carve some things out, it may mean that you have certain walkaway points. And sometimes I think people are scared of walking away from what they think is their opportunity. But, you know, a lot of times that initial offer that comes to you is never the best one. It never is. And so with that said, you, you sometimes need to take a breather and really take a moment and allow for an opportunity of negotiation and know that there is room for it. And it's, it's frustrating because I think a lot of times the way people operate, uh, whether it's in their personal lives or professional, <laughs> people don't like to talk to each other. People don't like to negotiate anymore. It's either... I already told you what I told you. I said what I said. I said what I said. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) And and that's it. Um, But sometimes, you know, it doesn't need to come back forcefully of, okay, well, this is what I say, and that's it. Instead, ask questions. Well, why why is that? I I was on a call today for a director, and I'm I'm talking to the attorneys that are representing the production company in Netflix. And they came, you know, pretty strong in saying, no, we can't accept any of these, period, point blank. This is our best. And I know it's not their best. I know it's not. So I asked, can we speak and hop on a call? Of course, people don't like to talk anymore. So got the runaround for a few days. But we finally got on a call. And I said, I just want to put it out there that my client's not a diva. We're not trying to be a diva. So it seems like a lot of what we were asking for might have been a reach. Can you explain to me the world in, the, in which we're in? You know, tell me, what is it? Why is it that none of these provisions can be incorporated? You know, and I'm I'm just literally asking. I think the way I was asking, and the fact that I was even asking, <laughs> um, luckily I had someone that was reasonable on the other side, and broke it down and said Netflix has a short leash on us. We can't really give that much. I said okay, but I understand how it also works too. So having that insight, knowing how to respond to that to find a pathway forward, and again asking, what world are we in? Is there a possibility that we could address it in a side letter or work it out, you know, this way or that way? And we were able to get some bend on some of those terms, not all of them, but some of them. And so I think it's important just to kind of allow for an opportunity for creativity to happen even in the business, like legal space. (laughs) I think people forget that that's creative too. All right. So we're going to take a quick break and be right back. I want to kind of take it back a little bit because you mentioned something called boilerplate provisions, and I've never Mm -hmm. heard of that before. So can you explain that a little bit more in depth? Like what exactly is that and why is it important? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, The boilerplate is like all the other stuff that people generally don't like to read, which is, um, you know, kind of like your reps and warranties, your indemnification clause. A lot of people are like, indemnification, like what is that? Who is that? (laughs) Uh, Force majeure, governing law. Um, miscellaneous sections, you know, to the agreement, sometimes it's actually labeled as miscellaneous, or they might actually call out a whole different set of extra provisions like severability, et cetera. Um, so outside of like the main stuff that most people that are non-legal tend to understand, uh, like compensation, term, services, you know, those types of things are crucial to an agreement. All the other stuff is still crucial, but they're generally deemed boilerplate because people tend to gloss over them. Okay, understood. Got it. You mentioned indemnification. Can you give us the definition of that? Because I see and I'm like, okay, 
What does this mean? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically this added assurance. So what it is, is uh, essentially you are agreeing that in the event there's some other party that's outside this contract. Right now, it's a contract between you and I. So if, if I fail to perform, you can deem it a breach of the contract and you can sue me for damages. It doesn't address if someone else comes up into the picture and actually sues you for something that we're doing together. So to give an example, say uh, the three of us are actually uh, producing a TV series. And it's a TV series that's actually, you know, focused on, uh, you know, focusing on other people's stories, their most embarrassing stories, embarrassing moments. Um, you would think that, you know, we've actually got the clearances to interview these people, have them on our show and kind of show them as a spectacle of like what happened and what occurred. But in fact, we didn't actually sign any contracts with them. But now they're suing both of us. But in our contract, it may specify that I was responsible for getting all of those clearances and I failed to do so. So outside of suing me for failing to perform, because there's this third party claim of defamation, let's say, you can actually sue me on top of that and I would pay you for whatever it is that you need to defend that claim. That's what indemnification is. So it's like built-in added insurance. It's only as strong as how the parties may have money, you know, as far as like what's in their pockets um, or if they have insurance, for instance, to kind of cover those issues. Uh, so that's that's generally what it is. I think recently what we've seen um, in contracts come up is this morality clause um, with people buying followers and buying likes and comments and engagement and all that kind of stuff. Can you talk to us about the morality clause, who it protects, why it's needed? Yes. Generally, you tend to see a lot of these morality clauses in endorsement deals um, and especially like social media influencer agreements as well. Uh, and so they're, they're meant to protect the companies that are hiring you and also the advertisers that might be associated to make sure that they're not tying themselves to a bad situation because it, you're only as strong as your reputation is. So if you're an influencer who has allegations of sexual abuse, of domestic violence, and you're supposed to be a part of a family brand, chances are you're getting dropped, <laughs> okay? So like those provisions that are prepared to protect the company to make sure that they don't have claims coming at them or any of their, their customers or subscribers leaving off the strength that you are part of that brand or associated with them in some way, shape, or form. So those morality clauses are important and they are a real thing. Um, definitely have seen severances of, of talent based off of maybe their political stances, especially in a very, you know, divisive political climate that we have been in, you know, for the last few years, uh, those types of things have actually come up and stymied certain deals. So can we talk a little bit about severability? Because mm -hmm. we had a situation recently come up. Oh, yes. We where did. our contract was severed and we did not get any of the assets but also there was no, I don't think there was a clause in the contract about severability. So what happens if there is no clause for that? Oh, interesting. So let me make sure I understand. So with your guys' situation, there was no severability clause, meaning that there was a particular clause at issue and then it kind of voided the whole contract? Well, the, the person we worked with just decided they no longer wanted to work with us and didn't give mm -hmm. us a real explanation. They just said they, they can't do it anymore. 
Um, uh, and we never, they refunded the money, but we never got the assets, like the photos that were taken. And in the contract, there was no severability clause. So are we just asked out of that? <laughs> Boom. Okay. Gotcha. So, so severability, the way that I was thinking of it was the, like a legal provision that's a boilerplate provision in contracts. So the true term of that legal sense of severability is basically um, built into the contract to say that if there was one one provision or a few sections of the contract that actually are unenforceable, maybe by matter of law or unenforceable by some other by other means, um, that they can, the, a judge can strike it out or you guys can strike it out, but mm. the rest of the contract remain in full force and effect. Oh. So that's what that type of severability okay. I'm talking about. Okay. I think you meant termination. You're talking yeah. about is really like termination. Yes. What happens if somebody's like, you know what? I don't feel like working with y'all no more. I'm good. Yeah. I'm okay. like, <laughs> what do you do? Yo, that happened twice to us, y'all. I was thinking about that today. I was like, what is it? What do you do in that case? Yeah, yeah. No, and honestly, that's where like a contract, you have to read it as a whole document. Okay. Not like hone in on one section, right? Because, okay, you mentioned images. Let's just say this was like a photographer that you guys have been working with for some time. And he or she has a lot of your images. They, they do not only your still photography, but let's say they do some of your videography services. Let's say in the contract, you agree to pay them, uh, you know, $3,500 a week because they're, they're following you around. You're doing multiple, you know, shows and episodes that require both services, the still photography and videography. So with that payment, it's with the expectation that you actually get <laughs> the materials. Now, back to what I was saying a little while ago about some of those important provisions, I talked about ownership. A huge misconception, especially in the photography, videography world, is this idea that, okay, well, I paid you, photographer, videographer, X amount to film or, you know, shoot these images. They belong to me. And that's not true. Actually, under copyright, it belongs to them unless there is a section in the contract called work for hire meaning that all services that are rendered by them from the, the date of that agreement or otherwise, if you, if you specify otherwise in the contract, that all of those materials, um, it could be the raw footage and edited footage, the final version, all of that would be owned by you who's paying them. If you have that in the contract, that's effective. If you don't, you've got to fight on your hands. Um, the, the other key thing is, okay, that timing of payment I talked about, are they going to get their full payment upon your receipt of all of those materials that you asked them to provide you with first? And if that's not the case, that's how they can kind of finagle and finesse in certain respects, right? So if you only paid them, if you paid them 100% of their fee and you were expecting them to provide you the materials up by a certain date and they ran off and actually they secured their bag, <laughs> um, and you haven't heard from them ever since, like that's an issue because now you're, you have to chase after them in the hopes that they will, you know, be scared enough to come back to the table to provide you with all of your materials, or you really do have to go forward and file a suit in order to kind of get the, the funds back. Thank you. I think that's, that's really important as content creators to know that you don't own the rights to your photos or videos. And at the, the beginning of the episode, you asked if I had ever signed a bad deal. So I didn't necessarily sign a deal, but a photographer took photos of me. And like a year later, I was on a Jumbotron in a mall. And I was like, wait a minute. 
didn't sign up to be on no fucking <laughs> like billboard. What's happening? But the photographer yeah. owned the rights to my photos. And so there was nothing that I could do about it. Is was is there anything that she could do about it? Yeah. I mean, oh. depending <laughs> on that contract, right? So I don't know if you even had one. You know, with There was no contract. Okay, gotcha. So they snapped some photos. Yeah, you can hit them with a cease and desist to say, you know, I did not grant you any rights to my my name and likeness, wow. my my image, right? So because that's a, kind of like a depending on what state you're in, it could be right of privacy, right of publicity. Um, so those types of issues can can come up in a cease and desist. Yeah, the brand was actually supposed to make sure that you like before that I was they okay with yeah them. that you were okay like for no. their you know legally. See, I didn't know that. So it, it's dicey because they. Yes, um, that, that's something that the agency should have really been keen about. But I'll tell you that not all agencies are because um, they probably felt like, oh, well, I bought this image online. Let's say that that photographer took that image of you and it was a, a stock image um, library that they actually. That's what happened. Registered under. Yep. Yeah. So it gets kind of quirky like that that's how like an agency would be able to wiggle out of the situation of like well this is the license that i paid for um you know here are the terms under this you know this service that we got it from or from the photographer and actually that identification portion well yeah now we're looping in the photographer he or she needs to handle that issue that's not on us like though that's how you kind of see a, a chain of you know kind of like the chain of horrors or you know scenarios that really play out in the transaction sometimes I think content creators, we really have to pay attention to this also, especially as we start getting more opportunities to do content creation for brands. Really look out yes. for like that work for hire clause. Make yes. sure that you still have full ownership of anything that you create, even though you're licensed it to the brand to be able to use it for X amount of time. Just make sure you're not fully giving it away because... Yeah. Even like having your friend sign contracts, I feel like. Like if your friend, if your homegirl is taking photos of you, like sign a work for hire. Mm-hmm. No, but it's absolutely. And what I will say is like, look, in, you know, in the in the world of production, because I operate on both sides, I represent talent and I also represent studios and production companies. Um, it's very typical that if you're coming in, there's, there's a lot of people that are involved in the collaboration process to make an audiovisual pro- project or uh, a brand campaign, et cetera. So it's very typical that you're probably not going to be the party unless you are an established uh, production company or at the end of the day, even established production companies don't even own the rights to the ultimate buyer or advertiser um, that you're actually going to assign those rights away. Just make sure the dollars and cents make sense. So as I mentioned, I had to walk away from a few deals recently because it just didn't make sense for me. Um, but like the words that were I was seeing on the on the screen was perpetuity. And so anytime I, I always control F, I think that's a control F and search perpetuity in the contracts. And I don't even read anything else because I'm like, I'm not signing this. Um, are there any other words that we should be on the lookout for? that make us think twice before signing contracts? And also, can you get into the actual legal definition of what perpetuity means? Sure. So I'll start with the perpetuity piece. Um, so perpetuity basically means forever. Forever? Forever. <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically, you know, whether it's your your services or them using your image and likeness in, in perpetuity is usually how you'll see it written, means that they can use your image of, it could, depending on how the contract is worded, for that specific project or for any and all projects and all media now known and hereafter devised, right? 
So you might be giving um, access and permissions to use, let's say, your image as an influencer uh, for a project that, a social media project, a campaign that's going to be on Instagram. Well, if they have it where they've got that language and they use it in perpetuity and then also use it in all media now known here after devised, it could be on Twitter, it could be on, you know, TikTok, they can have it on billboards. So you, you really want to pay attention to that language to see what it actually means. And that perpetuity piece for how long is something that is pretty typical in productions, I will say, just because we're not going to use it one time and then try to take it out. <laughs> and we can't use it again forever. But in what mediums and how so is something that you can negotiate, um, you know, in perpetuity. But it's, it's a scary term, but it's not a term that you should completely run away from because it can be pretty standard and customary in the respective industry practice. Because so again, it depends. I would say like when you mentioned TV or film, like if you're signing something for perpetuity, like is that because you're going to be compensated for it because of uh, like royalties and residuals. residuals and stuff like that? Right. So that'd be called a buyout in that case. So um, if they're saying they want to use your image in connection with, you know, this commercial in, in perpetuity, that makes sense. But if they're saying that they have exclusive rights to you, which exclusive is another word I'd probably pay attention to. Um, they have exclusive rights to your services in perpetuity in, in the reality space. Uh, no, we got to cross that out, right? Because that basically is like, you know, Bravo coming at you and saying, here's a reality show. We want you to be on The Real Housewives. So we want, you know, your services rendered to us exclusively as a reality star in perpetuity. That's a Mr. Wonderful deal. Run from it. You know, so that's a situation you want to do some carving out on. Are there any other phrases we should be on the watch out for? Yes. The term um, exclusively or in exclusivity is another one. So what that means then, if they're asking for your services uh, or that your services are exclusive or in exclusivity to that project or to that company, that means you can't do that thing anywhere else. So then make sure that the dollars and cents make sense. We see that a lot, you know, as content creators, but it'd be like 30 days yeah. or two days before, two days after. Mm -hmm. um, can't work with competing brands, but. Which I think is fair. Yeah. I yep. think that um, as long as you compensate us, like skincare is my, that's what pays my bills. So if you're going to tell me right. 30 day exclusivity, well, then you need to pay me 30 days worth of work. That you're turning away, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perspectively, right? Yep. And so, and again, that can't be, in, you know, perpetuity. So you're saying 30 days exclusively to us, okay, that's that's fine. Or, hey, it's actually not fine because I've already committed to another project. We need to, you know, carve that out to account for the fact that I've already agreed and committed to this other thing that might be happening within that 30-day window. That, again, is that negotiation piece. Just knowing your business, knowing what you've got coming down the pipeline or what is already kind of in the works, you know, for yourself to be able to make sure that you've got your coins coming from different sources. Now, you mentioned you work with talent as well as agencies. And I feel like as mm -hmm. talent, we are constantly getting served contracts, right? Um, so what mm -hmm. type of language can be added to contracts to kind of protect the talent? Because a lot of the times it's just mainly protecting the brand and protecting the agency um, with no like specific language that protects the talent. Yeah, I think it, it definitely depends on the, the caliber of the talent of like realistically, which you'll be able to negotiate more successfully. But I think what is generally reasonable 
um, would be in terms of like services. I mentioned the exclusivity piece. If they want you exclusively, you can't do anything else. Depending on what services are being asked of you, uh, you can say, well, not exclusively because I, I am doing these other things and I'm you're not paying me enough, you know, to be exclusive. Um, instead, I can have you guys as a first priority, non-material interference basis, I will provide my services. Um, or say like subject to my professional availability, but I agree to be exclusive during production. If production is like an eight week situation or something that is more finite that you can kind of identify. Also negotiating, you know, again, I always say timing of payment in, in and how the payment, if you can't get all in one lump sum, what are they asking you to do upon execution of that agreement? How soon? If it's a quick turnaround and most of the services are kind of happening within a two week window, Okay, well, then upon execution the agreement, pay me 50%. And then the other 50, let's say, you know, once I deliver what I'm supposed to deliver at that point. Um, so work out, you know, the timing of payment. I think a lot of people always think I need to get all my money up front or it's all back end. So it's not favorable to me. There's something in between that you can negotiate and it could be a payment schedule. I it's always scary. Um, it's always scary doing that, though, because you're like, oh, what are they going to say? First Give me of all, my money up front. I hate net 30. Like, abolish that from the kingdom. Like, because you, yeah, you, you know how to get in net 30 on this Wait, content. But net 60, though. <laughs> because some, net people, 90, they some try people are net 60 and net 90. Yeah. yeah. I saw a lot of 90 pre-pandemic. Now it's just like, nah. We don't have bitch, time. Bitch, run me my money. Run me <laughs> my coins. Okay? Like, I like the 50% up front. I do, too. And then upon the fully executed agreement, we can start 30 days from there. Is that, like, truly yeah. negotiable? Like, because we're dealing with middle people here as content creators. So we have the agency, then the brand. Um, and we're mostly yep. communicating with the agency, the middle person. So is that negotiable? Like, because sometimes they come back with like, oh, it's out of our hands. It's when the brand pays us kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it really depends. So I'll say this. Um, if you are trying to get the different scenarios, let's say you're working on a branded project and you're the the influencer. It may very well be subject to, you know, net 30 because it might be based off of when the production company actually receives from the advertiser uh, the actual payment, you know, to do the work. What I can say is that some companies, they actually, they make sure they get their money. Everybody makes sure they get their money, right? Um, so there's, there's definitely room. It's just a matter of like how much can they actually allocate and give you. So I always, I'm a fan of, I think it's always negotiable, but I also understand that it's reasonable if a, a larger company, because of their accounting systems, like like the Disney's of the world, it is a pain in the neck to do anything with them, right? Because they've got so many layers that they have to go through and the right hand's not talking to the left and folks are all over here in this way, you know? So it does take time when it's larger companies. When it's like smaller, mid-sized companies, they've got flexibility. So if they tell you, oh, company policy or our accounting department can't process in so at least like 30 days, that's BS. Because as far as I'm concerned, when they want something right now, they make sure to expedite that request. So expedite your funds. Right. <laughs> you know, make yep. sure you do for services begin. All right, y'all. So we about to take a break. Don't go too far. So. I want to say the song is Top Back. And Beyonce says in the song, if you want to party with the queen, you're going to have to sign a non-disclosure. <laughs> what is an NDA, a non-disclosure, 
why is it important for creatives to know what this is and how can we use them to protect ourselves? Absolutely. So a non-disclosure is basically an agreement to say that you agree not to disclose the details around a given project or business venture um, that you may or may not be a part of. And so um, some of the information that you know you might be receiving and kind of the openings of discussions and possible negotiations are coming on board, or maybe you're the person that, that has you know, proprietary or information that's meant to be kept confidential and not disclosed to the public just yet, um, that's something that you're trying to negotiate and broker between you and one other person or among a group of people or companies. So as an influencer, let's say I have this bomb idea that I want to pitch to a brand. Is it customary for me to send an NDA before I send my pitch or my idea just to cover my bases so that they don't steal this idea and use it later? Oh, I love this question. Thank you for putting in that type of context. It is likely the case that they will not sign that NDA. There are certain parties that are like, mm, that's cute. You don't know what you're doing. Like, actually, it looks more like you look more like a novice in <laughs> doing that and understanding how the business works, right? Um, so, again, I go back to the fact that, like, the entertainment space, content creation, it's a highly collaborative space. If you really think about it, the minute you have this idea that you want to put down in, in a text, audio, visual form, whatever format it is, you're actually, when you're speaking into existence, you're saying, I'm inviting people to be a part of this thing. And so some people, it makes sense to put under an NDA. But when you're asking a company to possibly finance your project, produce it, that's, you know, maybe on like a higher level, chances are they're not going to sign an NDA with you. So you have to walk with a gambit of trust. Part of that is making sure that you've got your intellectual property protected of what you can protect before you move forward so that when you've got something more secured to come to them with that, you know, when it's time to start negotiating and having those types of conversations, you can actually make sure that you retain ownership of them or, or have at least leverage at that point. But those discussions in the beginning, I mean, the, the people that really do that type of business, they're going to keep it confidential because they don't want to be in the business of spreading it around, if that makes any sense. That's usually a concern with those who don't know how to keep their lips shut um, and, and aren't involved in a whole lot to begin with. Got it. Now, with that said, if you have, let's say, um, crew personnel that you're working with, you do want them to sign your NDA, right? Because now you've got you've got more to, to protect. So it's easier for me to kind of give examples of gradations of where an NDA would be appropriate versus not appropriate. So in the example that you gave, if if you also substituted that for a writer, this happens a lot. Writers are scared to send their scripts to a Netflix or a festival who's going to be reviewing and possibly set up pitch meetings or talk about production slash distribution of the project. I agree that they shouldn't just submit their scripts unless there was a solicitation for it, because usually those major companies do not want you to solicit them in the first place mm. without having something, you know, signed beforehand. And generally speaking, it's actually the opposite of an NDA that you would receive from them. You would receive something called a submissions release form, meaning that you, you know, you agree to submit your materials that you acknowledge that there might in fact be projects they already have under development that might be similar to yours and you waive any claims of infringement in that regard. If they do pick up your work, then they would then negotiate some type of option deal 
um, or you know development deal of some sort uh, or pay for for that work if it came down to it. But for like crew personnel, um, if if you're a producer and you're hiring you know a DP and hiring crew to help assist in a project, you do want them to sign the NDA. Because the last thing you want, especially in the social media world, is people out here posting for the gram like behind the scenes footage of something that you haven't even publicized on variety or deadline yet. Like that's a problem. Yes. Understood. I've signed NDAs before for like upcoming like releases and stuff. Is that a good reason to sign an NDA? Like if a brand is releasing a product. So if I understand releasing a product, yes, because they may, they may in fact not actually hit market right away. Maybe there were some issues from, you know, production or marketing wise, they want to hold back on it. Um, or, you know, the facts that you may know at the time that you know it may not be right by the time they're ready to publicize. So, or they may change significantly. So it makes sense then to to have a confidentiality or, or non-disclosure agreement. And sometimes your contracts will actually have a confidentiality provision in them. Speaking of the confidentiality provision, because there's been some talk you know, about just talking about your contracts. Like, can you talk about your contracts? When can you talk about your contracts? Is it just the term of the contracts? You know, we're here at Content Queens. We are all about sharing. So speaking about rates, especially because we are Black women, we know we get paid 30% less than our counterparts. And so it's really important for us to talk about amongst ourselves about how much we're getting paid. Can we talk about the the legal side of that? Can we? Could we possibly get sued? Like, what is that? (laughs) Yeah, no, it really depends on how it's written in the contract. I hate to always have that as like the preface of my answer, but it's true. Um, for instance, I've seen confidentiality provisions and I've written them where, say, um, I may say that the terms of this agreement, the project, um, it, even the parties shall not be disclosed without prior consent of such and such or just not at all, period, point blank. Um, you can actually insert, let's say if you're an influencer, for instance, um, or just a, a creative, you want to be able to at least talk about this project you are part of incidentally for purposes of maybe trying to get the next job, you know, the next booking. You know, there may be some leeway in that with the other party where they'll say that's okay. But for the most part, you know, you can dis- you can discuss your rate of how much you charge, but don't discuss the terms of this contract, how much we paid you. And there's a reason for that, right? And that actually kind of cuts both ways. A company will not want their rates kind of thrown out there. Like a, a production agency that's doing a lot of branded projects, they don't want talent walking around saying, well, go to this company because they'll they'll pay you 3500 out the gate. You know, it doesn't matter your stature and you can try to negotiate up from, from that point. Um, because it may be that based off of the, the production budget and what they've been given by an advertiser for a particular campaign may be less than this. So they can't offer that. It also doesn't always work out in your favor as the talent, right? So you can you can share your fees if you if you want to, but it could possibly work against you where someone actually knows that you probably got paid less than you should have. And from an optic standpoint, it could, like you don't know how you're negotiating for yourself. So it, you know, it can kind of cut different ways. People will say like, oh yeah, well, we should hire her because she actually charges cheap, you know, so why not? <laughs> so you might get the jobs, but the the reasoning behind it uh, might be harder for you to be able to negotiate better leverage for yourself in the future. So it it doesn't always 
it's always advantageous to discuss rates and things of that nature for that reason. So do not discuss your contracts, all right? right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, something that I do want to talk about is the FTC. It is like the bane of every creator's existence. <laughs> In the first three words, you got to put hashtag ad, hashtag sponsored. But mm-hmm. also on another side, there are a large group of people that have not, the thing is not sponsored. It's not gifted. It's not an ad, but they think it looks cool to put hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored. So can you tell us what the FTC is and why it's so important to understand the guidelines as a creator? Yeah, so the FTC is the Federal Trade Commission. They kind of regulate various activities around marketing and advertising, um, whether it's, you know, tailored towards a a children-based audience or if you're an influencer, you know, what sorts of things, um, behavior protocols that you need to kind of undergo to make sure that we're staying above board and truth in marketing and advertising to consumers. So with influencers specifically, um, there has been a lot of, you know, criticism and there have been some lawsuits as well against influencers for failing to include hashtag sponsored or ad. Uh, the Kardashians definitely got hit with that. Fire festival. Uh, pretty, well, fire festival. Yep. Pretty early on in the game. Um, I, I think I just read recently there was a, there was an influencer based out of, I think, Dallas who got sued um, for making false allegations um, and representations about like a health and fitness product that actually, you know, pose danger to consumers. So it's a real thing, (laughs) you know, and it's so easy just to put those hashtags. It really is um, to protect yourself, especially if you are doing a branded campaign. Um, Because again, there, there's a way of still doing like authentic organic posts nowadays, right? Um, There's like the dark posts, the white posts that they, that they do behind the scenes. Um, but you do want to indicate, you know, to make sure that you're protected and not have like a federal claim come at you, um, making sure that you include that hashtag. The other key thing is like a lot of these agencies will try to wiggle out of that very quickly and will leave you out in the open, um, exposed. So it's best, you know, to, to do it. They will require you to do it. They'll actually probably shift the obligation to make sure that you, you do do it you know, rather than them say that they'll take the liability for it. Um, and, you know, it, it's become a more litigious thing. So what about gifting then? If you're gifted an item, do you have to share with your audience that it was a gift? Like, You know, it's, I've dealt with so much in the world of like the, the, the hashtags. I think it is still good to do so. And yes, I would say so off the strength that though it is gifted to you, you're, it was gifted to you in the hopes that you would actually still promote the brand. So quite frankly, that's still like, you weren't necessarily paid via monetary compensation, but you received some form of compensation that was substantial in the hopes that you would actually promote that brand. So the FTC would look at that um, to be compensation nonetheless. But what if Kia gives me a gift? Am I obligated to then share that I got a gift, that this was a gift from a friend who happens to own a business? No. Okay. So if it's truly, I'm sorry, I thought you were saying Kia, like the car company. My no. <laughs> <laughs> Kia, holla at me. All right. Oh my I mean, that would be nice. <laughs> I was like, if they did, right. they shouldn't be expecting anything. <laughs> um, no, look, look, 
what's the essence of a gift? Like for real, for real. Yeah. Like a gift is I am gifting you something because from my heart of hearts, what I'm giving to you, I'm not expecting anything in return. So don't. Yeah. Okay. Now, when you talk about gifting from a brand, like does does there need to be a contract in place that shows that it was a gift? And, you know, because I do see in certain contracts, not necessarily contracts, but when we're doing gifts in exchange, they do mention like if you do post it, make sure that you say it was a gift from us. Yeah. So I think it's just covering their bases as well. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think it should be uh, more explicit in that regard. And then even um, gifting of services you know, outside of the influencer realm, let's say you're you're willing to work on a project with your friends and provide your director services um, or, or production services. And in exchange, he or she's going to work on your project. And, and you guys are doing this for free for one another. It's kind of that quid pro quo scenario. That's fine. But back to the fact that like, yes, you guys are friends, um, still want to have a contract in place because there's still IP being created. You know, having something that's protecting of saying like, okay, we're doing this for gratis or in exchange, you'll be incorporating and providing the following services under my project. Um, but with that said, you know, establishing all those other parameters around it that despite it being a gift, um, nonetheless, like still want to make sure that you're complying with any federal, state, local regulations. And then also contractually, just making sure you're still protecting yourself, even if there's a, a free price tag on that. What about affiliate links? You know, we get commission from like Amazon and other, I'm not sure if you're familiar um, with the exact law, but do we have to disclose? Because I do see the FTC sometimes say that we have to disclose um, that we're getting commission from, like if you click on this link and purchase, we'll get a commission. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I still want to know that. But the biggest thing is that I want to make sure that consumers Consumers. know that. Mm -hmm. And the reason being is like, Unfortunately, there are some people that really do believe what is, you know, what is said in commercials and the puffery <laughs> that might be out there of statements. So when when you're doing affiliate links, because I know like when I do YouTube, it's very easy in the section because I do, I'm not uploading as quickly on YouTube. So it's very easy for me to write in the description box anything that you may click on is an affiliate link. When we're doing stories, though, sometimes it's a little bit more rapid. So do you feel like or or from your legal expertise, do you think that we have to put in every story, if you click this link, it may be an affiliate link, or just saying it a few times throughout the month or week, is that enough? So for me, I may post like 20 skincare things a month in my story, each Mm -hmm. with a link. Um, Today, it may be seven, in a week, it may be five, tomorrow, maybe two, but it's very sporadic when I do it. So do you advise every time I do it to just put a little disclaimer? Yeah. Okay. Just to be, yeah, just to be on the safe side. So just have that like copy and paste it somewhere that you could just, you know, copy and paste right into each post. I assume every link that is on social media is an affiliate link. You're getting some type of commission, but that's because I'm already in the game. But, you know, we have to come from a consumer standpoint, like that they don't know everything. Yeah. And so just making sure they're you know, we're being honest, open and honest because we're not trying to deceive you. It's yeah. just not enough space to do all these words yeah. on stories to still and make it look pretty. Yeah. Obviously, I'm just like, let me share this. And I forget. Yeah. But you're you're right. Like that is not covering our bases because we could be sued at some point. Yeah. Speaking of, like, is there anything that that you've seen that can get people sued on social media? Oh, gosh. Yes. <laughs> Let's see. I mean, 
quick examples I can think of are in regards to, um, okay, social, social media influencers. I'm thinking about the social media influencer who wants to get started in that space. Um, I saw this quite a bit. I know because I represent agencies and companies too, it's like a cringe moment when I see it happen. Um, when I see someone doing a video, maybe on hair care, and they've got several different products. And so let's just say that one of those companies actually reached out to them and wanted them to incorporate in their video uh, their specific products. And they'll, they'll give them free products, they'll gift it to them, and then they'll also pay them, whatever the case may be. But it was never really specified or indicated whether or not they can have other brands associated. So sometimes you'll see competing brands on the same video. And I'm like, wow, okay. I mean, shout out to the social media influencers. They're just trying to get paid. However, whoever's going to cut the check, <laughs> that's fine. If there was no restriction on, on uh, you know, posting as well, then it is what it is. Um, but I could definitely see that being an issue if that was something that was specified in the contract and yet they still kind of did their own thing and posted or reposted the video without permission. Uh, another area would be music. Uh, the use of music without getting the, the licensing for it. Um, that's that's big. Um, YouTube will be quick to, to pull that down as well and flag it. Um, but, you know, I'm seeing a lot as far as in like the TikTok arena. I mean, it's a very popular thing, right? But um, music can be a, a litigious arena too, if not careful. Definitely. I saw something on TikTok, probably the same thing about, I don't know if it was a company that used a song in an ad. They used a, a copyrighted song in an ad and they were getting sued oh, yeah. for that. Can you talk about that? Because we do use music in our videos. Most of the times, like we're veterans at this point, we use royalty free. But there are instances where influencers will use copyrighted music in ads, like meaning they were paid by a brand to promote this product. Can you talk about that? Is that legal? Like, could you get sued for that? Like, who's liable at that point? You can get sued for it. I, I, I'm surprised. And again, it depends on the level of the agency as well and their clearance, their clearance department, if they have one. Right. So that's where like even agencies need to make sure they have great representation. Um, unfortunately, I do see this with a lot of uh, multicultural brand agencies. They just don't have the resources in, in hiring legal or someone who specializes in clearance work to identify that that's a problem. So the new thing that, that definitely sprung up, you know, I think prior to the pandemic, but definitely within the pandemic, we're having social media influencers um, to create more organic style posts um, that they actually pick up their own phone, their own camera and film themselves and do their own cut downs and then send that to the agencies for the respective brand campaigns are being hired for. What is not clear that comes up a lot of times um, is what should not be incorporated in those videos. So like music that they, that the talent doesn't own or hasn't gotten the requisite license for, um, you know, any art and logos that are in the background or on their apparel that they're wearing, um, unless they were being asked to, you know, present and market that apparel specifically. Those are the types of issues that are clearance issues that come up a lot. But generally, like technically an agency should really be specifying like who's responsible for making sure that the clearance are there and, and also any of the talent that they hire, they should probably have 
brand guidelines um, that they they specify as well. That kind of talks about some of these restrictions and making sure are not incorporated in such videos or stills, so that way it doesn't present any issues. And it's also furthermore with this, as far as even using royalty free music, you have to make sure that, you know, if you, you can use royalty free music, if it's on your platform, but when you're yeah. giving it to a yes. brand to post, you need to make sure you have a commercial license. So it's important. Like for me, I use Epidemic Sound. You know, you guys can yep. check out my referrals. I could get some coins off. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but they have they have different tiers. They have yep. the standard tier and then they have a commercial tier. Once I started doing more content creation for brands, I was just like, you know, I need to upgrade it to the commercial because it's not just living on my platforms, it's living on the brands as well. So that commercial license covers my clients as well. And also as a creator, we have to protect ourselves because we could get sued also at the end of the day. So I wanted to ask you about protection as a creator. This is something that we talk about often. How important is it for a creator to have an LLC or an actual business versus being a sole proprietor, especially when we're talking about being sued? Yes, great question. Um, having a company, whether it's a corporation, an S Corp, an LLC, and I'll distinguish those momentarily, um, having that type of corporate entity separate from you is important. It's basically like you're giving birth to your business. Okay. Welcome to the world of parenthood. So when you create this company, you get what's the equivalent of a birth certificate, which would be the articles of organization or certificate of incorporation for that company. And then you go ahead and you get there. Uh, the equivalent of the social security number, which would be the EIN for the business. Like literally you have to start thinking that it's a separate being, an entity outside of yourself with this, even if you're the sole owner. The protection that it provides is that now, you know, anybody who's doing business with you, if you're running it through the company, they're actually doing business with your company who is furnishing the services of you. That's how a lot of actors do it. That's how a lot of content creators who are more established will begin working, uh, you know, working their contracts. So that way it kind of creates this shield of protection. So long as you're not commingling your personal funds with your business funds, um, and we can talk about that a little bit deeper, um, but truly treating it as like a separate entity for business purposes and banking purposes too, protects you from a liability standpoint that if you're doing contracts under that company, and now that company is getting sued, they can't come after your personal assets. They can only come after, you know, your role as, a, as the corporate officer of that company and the company itself and any assets that you have within that company. So that's how you kind of shield yourself with protection there. So to distinguish, if you have your home in your own personal name, but it's not tied to your business in any way, shape or form, they can't, a uh, creditor or anybody who wins a lawsuit against you cannot actually seize your your house as an asset if it wasn't under your company so long as you weren't operating you know kind of commingling of your funds where it seems like this is just an alter ego of you is it really necessary for creators to have an llc should that be something you do like when you're looking for a lawyer should you be establishing an llc at that point yeah no i think um even before you're looking looking for a lawyer i think it depends on how, how serious are you with your business? There are some people that start off with a sole proprietorship. So a sole proprietorship is basically, it's you doing business as a name. And you would file that technically with um, the respective county that you live in. But for all intents and purposes, it really doesn't create that distinction that I'm talking about. It's basically you <laughs> with an alter ego name. So it would be your social security number, you on the hook, your personal assets, everything. So it provides the least amount of protection. 
Then you have um, an LLC, a corporation, and an S-corp. Those are the companies that are actually formed with the Secretary of State in the respective state that you live in, or if you pick another state to actually form your business. That actually is important because now what it establishes, again, that separate identity, as I mentioned before, and it kind of gives more credibility because in some cases, for instance, even if you're an influencer or even if you're a content creator working on a production, a production may not want to hire you as an individual. They may want to deal with, you know, a company structure. It's usually more established companies that kind of have that concern a little bit. So they would prefer to deal with a, a loan out and making sure, especially if it's a 1099 arrangement, that you are responsible for all the, the taxes that need to be withheld at the state and federal level and that they're not responsible for it if they're paying you as an independent contractor. Um, so it, it is definitely important to distinguish between a corporation and an LLC is that essentially an LLC is a little bit more um, amenable to, I think, content creators. All right. So once you form your entity, you establish your LLC, um, you, now you might want to start protecting your IP or your intellectual property, right? Um, so mm-hmm. what are the different types of intellectual property? Yes. So you've got... Um, patents, copyrights, and trademarks. Those are like the top the top three. There's some other avenues of, of IP, but those are the main ones I'll discuss. So I'll make it quick and easy. Uh, patent work is actually what they call hard IP. Um, that's really dealing with technological advances. Um, so a lot of inventions. And I, I call it inventions. So not inventions of a show idea. These are like your hardcore science and you know, um, math inventions, mathematical inventions that are being created. So that's a like a harder and higher distinction um, in terms of actually getting protected. So you always hear about these utility patents; they don't really mean anything. Um, that's like the easiest form, but it's it's really hard to get an actual patent. It has to be something that's new, that's innovative, uh, for it to really cross that bridge. And usually, you want to have a specialized patent attorney that assists with that. None of that, which I do. <laughs> so I work on the soft IP side, uh, the fun stuff, <laughs> which is the, the copyrights and the trademarks. A copyright is actually protecting the expression of an idea. Um, and that could be in the form of like a literary work, a be it a novel, a script, or it could be music, um, you know, in lyrics, uh, audiovisual form, your films, your TV series, et cetera. So it's actually the expression of it that gets protected, whereas trademarks actually protect uh, a brand name, a logo, the the goodwill that's associated with that mark. So I give the example of Starbucks. Starbucks's symbol of the goddess, the green goddess, is actually a design logo um, that they can protect, but it's also an illustration of of the, of the brand, right? But all that is like trademarks oriented. Whereas um, Nike's Just Do It is like another aspect of a, of a trademark logo. Uh, it's, a, it's a catchphrase that people remember. It's associated with the goodwill of like how you think of Nike. You think of athleticism, people that just go out there, they do it. They, they don't think twice. Your films are something that you would protect from a copyright standpoint, but if you have a series that is like a franchise, like the Real Housewives of dot dot dot, the show concept itself, you know, the the pitch deck, the seasonal treatment, how they planned out the episodes and the format, those are things that could lead to more of a copyright angle. But the Housewives as a series, as a franchise, is something that could be trademarked, 
based off of specific services or maybe merchandising that they do around the shows. So that's how you'd want to distinguish trademarks and copyrights, if that makes sense. So speaking of trademarks, I actually trademarked my social media name. Me and my mom did it ourselves. No office actions. And it was amazing. And so I'm very, very adamant about creators and ownership, especially owning their IP. Is there something that creators should be looking to do? Like, I just wanted to do it to just flex my skills. And because I do have a, um, a previous background working in intellectual property and to just have something of ownership, like this is something I've dedicated the last 10 years of my life doing. I got an LLC. Yep. I got a trademark. Um, is that something that creators should be looking to do, um, trademarking their actual social media handles? And how can they be protected with that? Yeah. I mean, look, IP has become what, you know, we talked about with real estate in the past. You know, how we said that, you know, real estate is is the hot game of, of ownership. IP now is, right? It's something that's an invaluable asset that plenty of companies are looking to tap into and secure themselves, um, any content creators that are associated. I mean, that's that's what you're writing off of, the IP of your your name, your social media handle, and all the followers that are following that particular handle. So with that said, I, I definitely think that it's something worth, you know, exploring as far as trademarking, depending on what your name is, you may or may not be able to successfully trademark it, but it's worth a shot, you know, and seeing what is possible for sure. All right. So we spoke about trademarks. Let's run it back to copyrights because, you know, we all be tweeting Twitter fingers and IG captions and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not sure if you remember. You probably do. There was this viral phrase that went like a million times, a diamond platinum. It was on fleek. And the creator, Kayla Newman, a.k.a. Peaches Monroe, didn't see a dime from this viral phrase. Like it was brands were using it on their shirts. We saw it in uh, videos and in music. But, you know, my girl, Miss Monroe, didn't get any coins from that. So, like, can we talk about social media copyrights, like tweeting things? Or I think it was a vine that she said it in. Um, are we protected with through copyright law with things that we post on social media. Gotcha. So I think actually that specific example would be more of a trademark issue than it would be a copyright issue because it's the the phrase, right, that she had that became this viral catchphrase. Um, It's also like the situation with Black Girl Magic. uh, The woman who came up with that as a concept didn't trademark it and ended up being a dispute between two companies who were fighting for the trademark, neither of which actually created it in the first place. They were just the first to file. So first in time, first in right. Um, but in terms of like, let's say if her video was something that was being reposted that she was looking to protect, the video itself is something that she could protect under copyright um, and claim copyright infringement as opposed to claiming a trademark infringement issue regarding the video. The The phrase would be something that she would hook that into a trademark infringement claim on. But can you trademark a viral phrase? Yes, you can. You okay. can trademark anything. That don't mean it's going to get approved. <laughs> right, right. You can trademark anything that's in connection with the classes. Um, like the trademark office has 45 different classes. And these are um, kind of the generic, you know, distinctions among services versus goods, right? So if you're an artist, for instance, let's say a music artist, um, you want to trademark your name. You're not only looking to trademark your name for purposes of the music that you're putting out and being associated, you know, with the music artistry that you have. But let's say you also were doing some merch at you know, your concerts and selling T-shirts and tote bags, 
um, you know, facial masks, things of that nature, those are all going to fall in different classes under the trademark office. And I think a huge misconception that creators have is they think that once they have a trademark, they're so happy to show the certificate and everything and think that they have carte blanche protection um, from anybody else using that name. That's not true. It's only in connection with the classes in which you filed in. So that's oh. the tricky part of, um, you know, thinking that through for brand protection. Yeah. So I'm saying I'm sending cease and desist letters to everybody who's using the notorious <laughs> Kia on social media. Right. Consider this your notice. <laughs> <laughs> but then if I use it, if I use it in a different context. Yeah. Then you can like if you started a because I only have it in the serv- social media service uh, or class. So is this what happened to Prince? Is this why he called himself the artist formerly known as Prince? Like did he or his oh. record label trademark the name and he wasn't able to t- take it with him? I don't know. Is that what happened? So I love that you bring that up um, because I feel like certain content creators kind of dismiss when I try to have the trademark conversation. Um, like crazy enough, social media influencers and music artists are some of the top ones that are notorious for this. I'm working on some trademarks right now for music artists that you would be shocked if like, you never secured your name after all these years of being in the business. With, with Prince, to answer your question on that point, that was more of a record label contract issue. Got they it. actually okay. owned his name, image, and likeness. So he didn't even own his name wow. Prince. That's why okay. he became the artist. Okay. So that's something again, before an artist goes to a label, protect yourself, secure your own name. Don't rely on the, the label to actually secure it for you. Because guess what? It's not gonna be something you own. It's what they own they can make money off of. Wow. Wow. Okay. Did not know that. <laughs> and you brought up something interesting interesting about, you know, Prince and his label owning it owning his name, like that creates a conflict of interest, right? Between the artist or the talent and like their management, because like they'll have a le- like they'll have their own legal team that will make sure the the company is good, but that might not be in the best interest of the talent or the client, um, which is a great example of things we do. You know, most of us are assigned to, well, either looking to sign to or assigned to management companies. Management companies have their own legal team dedicated yep. to the management company, we just so happen because we're the talent, we're included in that. When is a good idea for the talent, the creator, to get their own attorney to go through these contracts to make sure they're covered? Uh, absolutely. Um, from from out the gate, when that manager or said agent um, is actually looking to have you sign one of their contracts, have your own attorney, you know, go ahead and review it, right? Because they're even if they tell you they've got an attorney that can review it for you um, and go over it with you, that attorney has been paid <laughs> realistically by such manager or agent. So their loyalties are to them, um, not not you. And so you want to have your own that can actually give you insight into what exactly you'd be signing off on because a lot of times uh, some of those contracts can be quite egregious with some provisions that are in there and lock you into a situation, even post-termination, that you would still owe them commissions in perpetuity (laughs) um while also trying to you know bring in a new a new manager you know to actually represent you so that's definitely a great time when they want you to sign their contract and then also you know depending on depending on the deal like in certain scope of services that's in that contract can also specify what they have the right to do on your behalf and not do so you definitely want to have a separate attorney negotiating uh or you are at least like reviewing that contract and making certain modifications. So that way it limits what 
they, as the manager or agent, have the capability of doing on your behalf without your say so, without your signature. Yeah, like make sure you're also reading your contracts, not just relying on your management company to re- to go through it for you because they'll, you know, they're human. They're yeah. this era. They're not necessarily attorneys. Um, and so they're not going to advocate for you like you're going to advocate for yourself. So make sure you're reading your contracts and get an outside attorney for sure. Yeah, yeah. So what are the laws around reposting? Like I post something on Instagram and a brand slides in my DMs and they're like, hey, we want to share this on our Instagram. Um, Or sometimes they'll come in the comments. We talked about this before and they'll say like, oh, to be shared on this brand page, um, just hashtag yes. And sometimes we'll do it. Sometimes we won't. But are there laws that protect creators? Um, And is reposting legal? Is it illegal? So with reposting, you definitely want to be careful that you're not actually violating somebody else's uh, rights and that could be music rights. It could be their image, um, even even the products. There might be restrictions around that where they didn't grant you the rights to, to repost. Now, with that said, you know companies and, and brands they don't necessarily mind if someone's reposting their product because that's free marketing <laughs> that they're getting out of it, so long as it's done in a positive light. Um, so if there is an issue that's not done in a positive light, you could have a potential claim on you or against you in that regard. Um, but uh, for the most part, you know, the reposting aspects are definitely more, much more contractual than they are, you know, as far as issues of regulation outside of the FTC and making sure you put hashtag sponsor ad if they've asked you to do so for compensation. But what if I, okay, we had an issue on Black Girl Smoke and that's a business that I own. And we reposted these dope shots that this photographer took. The model was all gung-ho. She was like, oh, thank you so much. We didn't know who the photographer was. We didn't find out until she came into the comments, irate. Why didn't you tag me? Take my picture down, cussing us out all this, that, and the third. We took it down because morally we were, you know, we understood. Okay, fine. But did we have to take it down? Like, could we have just left it up there and ignored her comments and and tagged her? Or could she have sued us? That goes back to who owned the rights to that image. Did the okay. photographer, him or himself, actually on the rights? And yes, okay. um, you, you were infringing because they didn't give you a license to do so. And 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 basically the, let's say that the, the model actually owned the, the images, you know, she could. But again, because of ownership being an open question on that one, um, that was definitely one worth investigating or just taking it down out of simplicity. I see a lot of people using like language, like disclosure, disclosure language, like this does not violate copyright law or like you know posting this for promotional purposes like does that cover you for during reposting it it really depends basically what you're putting out there as a disclaimer is i do not get the requisite licenses from these people or these companies to use these things i'm doing it anyway you guys (laughs) but i'm just hoping that i can lean on this thing called fair use that i don't know much about have a great evening (laughs) right so (laughs) the the concern with that is Fair use is a, is a four-factor, very fact-intensive um, test, and it's a defense. So what that means is, as a defense, you're basically putting out there and saying, I didn't get the, the requisite rights to like, any type of short-form license or you know permissions from these parties to use such footage, images, et cetera. Um, so having that disclaimer is all well and good, and it's, it's you know, possibly well-intentioned. But it's even better to make sure that you actually get those clearances or really consider 
um, looking into what fair use actually is and if it's something you can legitimately use. And so fair use, um, just to kind of put it out there in a, in a quick shot, snapshot of it, because it's um, we can definitely go into more detail on it. Uh, basically, it has to be such uh, video footage or music. Something has to be used for purposes of satire, commentary, or some type of criticism, not just because you want to you want to use it. And, and it can't be used to then just have criticism about something else entirely. It has to be on that specific thing that you're looking to take and lift. But there's still like three other factors associated with it. Is it transformative? Or is it something that you're just copying, pasting, and then doing a quick blurb about, and there's nothing new that you're adding to what has been created by someone else? Um, are you doing it for compensation or not? Uh, that can lean against you, especially if you're doing it on YouTube and you actually have you know, thousands and millions of followers and you're getting paid off of your channel, you know, that could swing against you as well. And so, you know, an attorney should really be able to do like a quick review and see is this something, I shouldn't say quick review, but at least a review to see whether or not this is something that really truly falls under fair use than people just assuming that what they're doing by throwing a disclaimer is fair use in and of itself. So then are, are our photos, videos, blog posts, tweets, um, are those things protected by copyright law? Or once we put them out there, are they just out there for the world? So um, with copyright, the nice part about it is that a moment of creation, uh, it's up for, for copyright protection for the most part. If it's in a what's called a tangible medium of expression, a.k.a. is it recorded? Is it written down? <laughs> Something that is much more tangible. That's why this whole NFT situation is like super crazy, which I don't even want to get into uh, in this conversation. But it's something that's so transient that poses problems for our copyright law regime. Um, but with that said, it's protected upon moment of creation, but doesn't mean anything as far as you being able to enforce your rights in court unless you have a copyright registration certificate from the U.S. Copyright Office. So there's nothing that could be done? You can do a cease and desist, at least. Um, but if you will, like a bite behind a cease and desist letter is that you're willing to go to court if you need to. And in order to make sure you hail yourself into court for copyright infringement, um, you, you do want to have that copyright registration certificate, which is easy to get. More from our conversation after the break. Yo, this episode has been so educational. Yes. Oh my God, I've learned so much. I hope the kingdom, yo. Same. We came through with the free gems. Yo, y'all got a free (laughs) consultation. I'm going back through through the Rolodex of my mind like, oh, damn. Those fringe. I definitely (laughs) a fringe. Like, I got some stuff I need to go take down. (laughs) Especially as a business owner, there's so much things to learn. Jeez. No, this has been incredible. I hope I didn't bore y'all. No, No, I'm so fascinated. (laughs) No, this was information that we needed to know. We needed to hear this in in a language that's digestible because reading contracts, oftentimes it's confusing. It looks like Mm -hmm. a language that I don't understand. And so hearing it from you, it made things much more clear. Absolutely. Like, I hate, look, I get it. I'm I'm an attorney. I got that label behind my name. It's great. Um, I don't feel like people pay me to like make it more obscure. <laughs> People pay me for clarity, right? Yep. So we try to break down the legalese as much as possible. All right. Here at Content Queens, we do something called rapid fire. We are going to ask you a series of questions and you have to tell us the first thought that comes to your mind. 
Ooh, okay. All right. I'm going to kick us off. What brand or creator would you love to collaborate with in the future? Mm. Issa Rae or, or Tracy Ellis Ross. Okay. As an attorney, what's something that you would write into law? Oh, I don't know if it's appropriate to say. It's but, always uh, appropriate. <laughs> oh, I would love to actually pass a no F given day. Oh, yes. <laughs> just like, you know, just like today, the day y'all pull it out. You know, <laughs> I don't know what that one day would be because I feel like it would probably cover the whole entire calendar. Yes. <laughs> can it be during but, Black uh, History yeah, Month? Yeah. Yes. Can, it be, can it be during Black History Month? Though? A Friday, too. So it's like F there day. There we go. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what newsletters should creators be subscribed to? Crestful Office PC, what? Okay, plug, plug, plug. <laughs> Last but not least, who else should we have on this podcast? Mm. Oh, I'll tell you. Um, her name is Shanice Love. She's actually um, a woman of color who focuses on, you know, do-it-yourself, building your credit and how to do it. Um, she's, she's just a dope personality. Uh, she's also a publicist by nature and just someone who is fully knowledgeable and can give you the rundown of how to, you know, keep your coins and grow them. Wow. Love it. So, Marissa, thank you so much for being on this show with us. Um, We totally and fully absorbed all the knowledge that you dropped. It was necessary. We appreciate it. We appreciate you. Um, Is there anything in your career or your life that you'd like to cheers to? Oh, I would love to cheers to becoming becoming a mom as of uh, five months ago. So I am a new mom and a businesswoman. Um, and now moving into the phase of working on the business executive side uh, for greenlighting projects that I, I can cheers to. Yes, yes. Cheers. cheers to you. All right. <laughs> now it's time. Like, how can the people keep up with you? Like, plug your handles. Your, how can they, if they want to hire you, how can they get in contact with you? Absolutely. So you can actually find me on Instagram at Clo, that's C-L-O underscore entertainment. Um, you can also check out my website at crespolawoffice.net. And if you want to reach out, uh, feel free to reach out to my email at mcrespo at crespolawoffice.net. Perfect. Thank you so much. That was such an insightful and knowledgeable conversation. Like as someone who's worked in the legal field for a couple of years, I learned so much. As someone who hasn't, but who has been just like a freelance creator for a while, I too learned a lot. And it kind of puts things in perspective. It makes you really think about the things that you're signing, the things that you're agreeing to, how important these things are. I think sometimes as a creator, we can get very excited that, oh, this brand wants to work with me. Oh, this person wants to partner with me. And we kind of bypass the the important steps just to do the partnership. I don't know about you, but lately, because I've been so invested in the work that I'm doing and because I've had, like I mentioned in this episode, had to walk away from a few deals because of bad contracts. When I get the contract, I get a little bit of anxiety. Like, it's like, it's serious. It's serious business. Like, I feel like I'm signing my life away. But you are. (laughs) In a sense, and not in a sense, you are like, you, like this is legally binding. If you decide like, yo, I don't want to do this anymore. Sometimes when you sign those contracts, there's a monetary fee involved. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you are kind of signing your, a little bit of your life. Yeah. Away. And I really prolong it until like the last second. Like 
I'm like, am I going to do this? Am I really going to do this? Like, I swear, it, it's like the two angels on the shoulder. It's like one is like saying, do it, do it, do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other one's like, but what about this? But what about this? Can you have this? Can you do this? Can you do this? So it's just like, it's just really, really nerve wracking because I take what I do so serious and I know how, like once it's signed, like it's done, it's a done deal. And you definitely yeah. do not want to walk away once you sign a contract, like. Like I mentioned, I had to do that in the past. And it's just like, you're you're disappointing so many people. But at the same time, you got to do what works for you. No, exactly. And that part is hard too. Even before you get to the contract signing, just the negotiating part of this is what's going to go in the contract, that can be scary as well because you don't want to scare the brand away. But also you want to advocate for yourself and your creativity and your IP and, and your yeah. likeness. And they be sneaky with um, amendments at the at the end or exhibit A, Girl. exhibit B. It's like, where did this come from? And you really like, is the language is very, very, very sneaky. So once again, read those contracts. If you have a question, ask questions, get clarity, be 100% sure and certain about what you're signing before you go through with it. And perpetuity, child, if it, that is the single know. most important word you would ever run across in any kind of contract. And that is our hashtag of the week, hashtag perpetuity. I like to control F or however you search on whatever you're doing, Adobe or Word, search perpetuity before you do anything. Because once I see that word, it's just like, I don't need to go no further. Like, dude, we got we to gotta, we gotta address this elephant in the room because she a big bitch and we don't want her. Like, she here for life. Like even past Sorry. life, like she here for your generations, generations, generations. All right, <laughs> your kids, kids, kids. <laughs> yeah, facts. Now that big facts, and people don't be knowing. Um, another thing is payment. Like always search, and I don't just mean how much you're getting paid, but also the net of it, right? And also because sometimes there are clauses in there that say if we don't pay you within net thirty, if it turns to net thirty one, then we owe you an additional ten or fifteen percent. Yo, go back through those contracts. If they don't pay you on time and there's a clause in there, you need to fight and advocate for yourself because they're not going to tell you, oh, remember, if we're late, we got to pay you a late fee. Now they're going to forget. Um, and also don't be afraid to redline and pad it in there. And one thing that, you know, we're in an era where everybody's just like, share, 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 no gatekeeping. But like, you really want to be careful about sharing things on social media. Sure, Vic, pull me to the side, like, yo, key this brand. Like, if it's your homegirl, somebody you trust, yeah, but y'all be blasting y'all full campaign details on social media. And that's, you're violating your confidentiality clause. Like you're, you cannot talk about these deals. Like for whatever the term is, you cannot give specifics. And so a workaround would be like giving people ranges or giving people advice. Yeah, not just saying. not saying exactly what they paid and you. And not yeah. saying. Or mm -hmm. the brand, just say, hey, I did a deal and it was $20,000 and it was a major brand. But you don't necessarily have to say nah, the brand. People, like, I'm telling you, TikTok gonna get y'all oh, soon, all right? Because y'all want to be so transparent. Y'all want to go viral and have all these followers and all this other stuff. Like, nah, protect your pockets, protect your coins, protect your investment because you're a business at the end of the day. And you don't want a brand to see you speaking so freely about your campaigns. That's just like, like, have some privacy and decorum they, about yourself, all right? <laughs> That's just, like, bad business. They won't hire oh, you again. Nope. They won't hire you again. Yeah. 
because it's like you airing out our dirty laundry. And even like the morality clause, I think that was really interesting. Like if you do anything like that, you know, could bring any type of shame to the partnership, they can back out. I mean, there are even clauses, and this has kind of fucked me up before, where you're not allowed to mention alcohol or narcotics. Like, there are clauses in in certain contracts that say that. Not just during the campaign, not like in the campaign, but for the duration of the campaign. So if the campaign is 90 days, for 90 days, you are not allowed to mention alcohol or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, and sometimes people don't read that and they will come for you. It's crazy. They bank on, like I said, they bank on you not reading it. But let's get into, we kind of skipped over our hashtag of the week, perpetuity. Let's get into the definition of perpetuity. Marissa uh, gave her gave us the legal lease of it, but it's pretty much, they get to use your name, your likeness, your content forever, forever, ever, ever. And there's a brand out here who is notorious for having perpetuity in their contracts. And I don't believe there is a standard contract. And that's their excuse. It's like, this is our standard contract. Our standard contracts have perpetuity in it. And I'm like, well, we can't work, period. We all work differently, yeah. though. We're, like, it's it's wiggle room it everywhere. Is, but, you know, they're a billion-dollar company. What you gonna do? You just a little influencer. What you gonna do? I mean, if you're gonna pay me millions... Back, like... Right. Like, I'm not going to say that perpetuity is always no for me. I think that, like, if there are residuals, because think about it, when you act or you model, um, you get residuals. There are people that are still making like the progressive lady or the the all state guy. Yo, they make it money for life just based on residuals. And look at Jason Weaver. Um, and like, he was like, Disney was only going to pay him like, what, a couple million to do it one time. His mom was like, uh-uh-uh, nope. We rather we playing the long game. Give us those residuals, baby. <laughs> nah, facts. So when you do see perpetuity, let's say that you're doing like a UGC kind of commercial thing. Okay, that's fine. It could be there, but like, what's up with these residuals? Yeah. Yep. Advocate for yourself. Like, there is no standard contract. Everything yep. can be. If they really, really want you, I've had a, br- a couple brands double back on some legal terms, whether it was exclusivity or perpetuity, they double back and was like, nah, we really want to work with you. How can we make this work? And so they will make it work if it's aligned. Well, that was a long episode. That was a very knowledge-filled episode. I hope that y'all grabbed a pen or a, a, a tablet and took some notes. Yeah, we're going to... Um, because we did. We definitely did. And because it was such a heavy episode, we're not going to have any uh, challenge of the week or question of the week um, because we want you guys to focus on your contracts and getting your legal stuff in order um, and using this episode as a guideline for how your contract should be crafted and watch words you should be looking out for. Exactly. As always, we love you. Thank you so much for spending your time and energy with us. Follow us at, at Content Queens on TikTok on Twitter, on Instagram. I think it's that Mm -hmm. on YouTube. Yeah, and once again, keep leaving us these five-star reviews because we are a five-star chick. We see y'all. We'll shout y'all next episode because we don't have time this one, but shout out to everybody who leaves us a five-star review. We appreciate you, and yeah, we'll see y'all next week. We just want to take a moment to thank everyone for joining us in the content kingdom. If you enjoyed your time here, if you learned something, if you feel empowered by what we shared, please do us the honor by leaving us a five-star review. Yes, we five-star chicks. We need five-star reviews wherever you enjoyed this show. That's right. If you're enjoying the art and the content that we put out, be sure to let the rest of the world know. Don't keep us a secret. 
Looking to keep this Content Queens conversation going? You can join our royal family on Instagram at Content Queens or on YouTube at Content Queens. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, please email us at contentqueens at gmail.com. That's a wrap for this episode. And until next time, see you next week. This is Content Queens, where content is queen. So wear that crown proudly. Content Queens is executive produced and directed by Frida Lucas. Mixing and engineering completed by Eric Aaron. Thank you all so much for joining us this week and we'll talk to you soon.